Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another edition of Let's Run.com's Track Talk Podcast, where we break down the world's track and field news for you. This week, plenty to talk about. The world's best women's 400-meter runner has been popped for anti-doping violations. That's the bad news. Good news, folks. Brown track and field, men's track and field is back. Tons of world records have fallen in the Chasky Treadmill Challenge. And we hope you're really excited. The Impossible Games are starting on Thursday, or being taking place on Thursday. Yes, that's right. Actual Diamond League track and field action this week. But folks, I think we have to start with the big, big news of the last week, folks. The first Prefontaine Classic at the new Hayward Field. John, it was amazing. The new stadium. You were out there. What was it like? Uh, I mean, there were a lot of skeptics saying we shouldn't have torn it down. The project took longer than people thought it would be, but the action was amazing. I mean, who thought Coleman was going to get close that close to the world record? Certainly not me. And Mo Farah coming back for his first track race in three years. That was phenomenal. I mean... Really a special weekend to be back in Eugene last week. But John, what about Johnny Gregorek? 346.99 in the mile. I mean, I know you, I need to bow down and apologize. You have been pumping this guy. You raced him, beat him in high school. You love that 346 mile. And we, and we saw the first one in U.S. soil. I don't know, Robert. I've been told that 346 isn't that impressive when it converts to a 1500 by people on this podcast. So maybe we shouldn't be bowing down to him, but. Yeah, 346, pretty good for an American, huh? Fastest mile in the world since Alan Webb. But guys, you guys are missing it. Alberto Salazar being paraded out with the Ceremony of Nations and the flags with Phil Knight. It was just sort of the biggest F you to the anti-doping authorities. I was shocked. I mean, after they said they weren't going to name that tower for Bill Bowman, I really didn't. I thought they'd just keep it nameless. But renaming it for Alberto Salazar and, you know, hoisting him up there on that uh, from suspended through the air. That was that was pretty insane, I gotta say. Oh, wait. None of this actually happened, folks. In case you didn't realize that, it was a bit of a let's run like kind of daydream. But the Prefontaine Classic, the first one at the New Hayward Field, was supposed to be last weekend. So we just reminding ourselves what we are missing a little bit of during COVID times. Folks, before we get to the actual news, Reach out to us, 844-LET'S-RUN-IN, 844-538-7786. We'd love to hear from you, or you can email us, let's run at let's run. But first a plug for the sponsor. Come on, people. Stop being cheapskates. It's not too late to sign up for the amazing Let's Run.com summer training program. Whether you're in high school or college, we can coach you. We did this one other time, 2001. And folks, we produced a guy that was right behind Ryan Hall at the NCAA Cross Country Championships. Maybe we can do that for you if you sign up now. Yep. We launched the program last week. We're back in the coaching business, and it's $149 for the full summer. You get a training program based on your training mileage, and from the great John Kellogg School of Training, you can interact with me and Robert and John. We will have videos explaining what's going on. And also, if Robert argued being cheap. Robert, the value is there. This thing is definitely worth 150 bucks. But financial assistance is available if you need it because there's a lot of kids out there who don't have good college coaches. So if you know any underprivileged kids, they may not already be coming to Let's Run, but if you know some people who might need a coach, you don't have time to coach them, please direct them our way. But we've had people sign up everywhere. We have one from the Philippines, I believe, Robert. 
Oh yes, I've been Hawaii. I've assigned the Hawaiian young lady her training program. Actually, a lot of these people are running too hard. We use the Final Surge app, like their their GPS. If they have a GPS watch, it goes up on the thing, and like immediately, I'm like, you're running too fast on your easy days. My Hawaiian young lady is. I don't actually. She says she's going by feel, but she's already exhausted. I haven't even assigned her a workout. I'm like, you're probably just too motivated right now. Anyways. Robert, I, I expect a Philippine Filipino Olympian now, Robert. That's one of the easier teams in the world to make in terms of track and field. So that's that's the bar now of success. Duly noted. And Robert, I know you mentioned that you know the pre classic, obviously we made that stuff up, but it did make me think mid June is just one of the mid June twenty twenty before this COVID pandemic would have been one of the great times to be a track and field fan in this country. Last weekend, we would have had the Prefontaine Classic at the new Haywood Field. This week, we would have had the NCAA Outdoor Championships, which is always one of the most exciting meets in the world. In Austin, Texas, which is a great city to visit. I really enjoyed going there for the meet last year. Amazing food options. And then next week, the U.S. Olympic Trials would have begun at the new Haywood Field. I mean, that's just a killer stretch of track and field, and hopefully we will be talking about this stuff Next year at this time, assuming we have meets, but got to pull one out. I mean, that, it, it just makes me sad thinking of all the cool track action that we've missed this month. Well, what makes me sad, John, is your praise of Austin, Texas for its food. Yes, the food's amazing, but it's also the home of Mama Johnson. Weldon and I's mother and father both live in Austin. We thought you meeting them last year was the highlight, but instead you've said you don't care about my parents your, your parents were very nice meeting them was a highlight robert especially because your dad brought me franklin barbecue this is how committed he was he knew the lines are always out the door for franklin and so he went there before i got there and brought me this you know pulled pork sandwich. i think it was a brisket sandwich actually uh whatever it was it was delicious but he was like look you come in austin you have to have franklin barbecue at some point and so even though it wasn't like you know, the hot stuff that you get right at the store. He went out of his way to get me some. That was that was a very classy and delicious move. So where should we begin, actually, John? I think we have to start with, well, I guess Brown, Brown got reinstated yesterday, which is big news. But I think globally, the biggest news since we've had our last podcast was Salwa Aydnassa, the world 400-meter champion, the second, sorry, third fastest woman in history at 48-14, has been suspended for whereabouts failures and she had three missed tests before the 2019 world championships it's since come out she had a fourth missed test in january there are a lot of people upset right now because they're saying if she had three missed tests before the world championships why was she allowed to compete at the world championships wasn't there some dispute on one of those tests so they waited till the fourth test to pop her we, we can debate the specifics but big picture come on when you read this was anybody surprised I mean, we've had the doping polls on letsrun.com before, right? Like, where we poll people and said, who do you think is clean or dirty? And just some of these marks are so far out there. And I hate that. I guess maybe I shouldn't go down this route because I hate it when people said this about Paula Radcliffe's marathon record. But just sort of an unknown from an unknown country running so fast. I'm not surprised. I mean, I guess she wasn't even tested busted for drugs but the fact that she got a drug suspension you know if i had to rank people who i thought could get popped in the next six months i would have put here near the top i mean i don't know maybe anytime anyone gets popped in our sport i'm not really that surprised 
I don't think it's fair to call her an unknown Weldon. I mean, she was the silver medalist in 2017 and beat Allison Felix in that race. She was the Diamond League champion. I mean, she'd run 49 earlier in 2019 and 49.08 in 2018. So uh, it's it's not that she came out of nowhere. It's that she PR'd by almost a second in the World Championship final. I mean, if you look at the all-time list, there's Marie de Koch of East Germany, obvious doper is the world record holder. Second, Jamila Kratochvilova of, Ch- of Czechoslovakia, very likely a doper. And then third is Salwa Nasser. And I think a lot of people would just say, you know, look to that and were shocked. But then the other thing is, I mean, Shawnee Miller Weibo was was second in that race. She ran forty eight thirty seven. I I don't know. Does that mean that we're automatically saying that Shawnee Miller Weibo has to be doping as well because she ran forty eight thirty seven? I don't know if that's necessarily the case. But I will say I'm not exactly shocked, especially given that Bahrain has had a spate of recent positives or. Uh, doping violations and her agent is also Juan Pineda has had several of his athletes suspended in recent years. Yeah. For Weldon to call her and I know it was pretty absurd. I mean, John, she also, I mean, she won the world youth title in, in 2015 running 51 50 at age 17. I mean, if anyone was going to be one of the best 400 meter runners, you, you'd have someone who runs 51 50 at 17 and then gets a silver at worlds at age 19 or something like that. And then, I mean, <laughs> she was far from an unknown. And, uh, but yes, John, the Asian thing is interesting too. I wasn't saying like she was unknown this year. And I guess she was super young and was the world youth champion. But like, how many Bahrainian top 400 meter sprinters are there? So maybe they poached her. Was she poached after she won world youths and all that stuff? So I don't know when she switched over. But like, the agent, Pineda, has so many athletes test positive. It's, getting a bit suspicious there. There's just a lot going on, right? I mean, she is so young. I guess she's only now still 21 or 22 22 years old. Yeah, just turned 22 a couple weeks ago. So I shouldn't say unknown, but maybe when some 18-year-old or 19-year-old just starts running world-class times, I guess we we could say she's just a young phenom. But I, I didn't mean coming out of nowhere this year or last year. Yeah, I, the thing I the thing it's it's the essential question for track fans though is when you see an amazing performance like that and there hasn't been anything previously to suspect that they might be cheating and again she hasn't failed a test but obviously missing four tests is a massive red flag and does trigger a ban but do we just say oh they're running too fast I can't believe in that performance or do you say Look, if I, I I have to believe in something, if I'm going to be a fan of this sport, I have to accept I believe in what I'm seeing, and then you know leave yourself open to being disappointed later. But I think the other thing we need to mention about this case, so a lot of people immediately started wondering, wait a second, she had three missed tests before the 2019 Worlds. How was she allowed to compete at this meet? And the thing I, I've heard, and this, you know, in talking to Gabby Thomas's agent, Paul Doyle, for, for about her case, you know, she had three missed tests. Her third missed test was in September 2019, and her suspension wasn't announced until May 2020. So that's eight months right there. It took them to actually announce that she had been provisionally suspended. She still hasn't been officially, you know, uh, sanctioned, but she is provisionally suspended. And I think the issue here is 
there's some due process element. You have to let these people know that they've missed these tests. You have to give them a chance to appeal. You have to also investigate whether it's worthy of a sanction because say there is an honest misunderstanding or maybe a, there was an irregularity by the doping control officer when he tried to test someone and he didn't actually call them or he didn't actually you know, follow the proper protocol, you don't want to announce this person's been suspended and then have to walk it back. And that's kind of what happened with the USADA case against Christian Coleman last year. We saw USADA didn't announce it, but it got leaked. And then they said there was a case pending. And then it came out that not everything was followed correctly. John, yeah, USADA made some technical mistake in that. But come on, if you have three missed tests, you need to have comments that it was done right. And you need to announce it almost immediately. To me, it should be within a month of the third missed test. This is absurd to me. How long? It takes them five months to figure this out. Oh, I, I, I agree with you, Robert. I think they should have been much quicker. It's, it's ridiculous it takes this long. I'm just saying that is going to be their explanation. Well, no, I, I think that the better explanation is, first of all, let's don't act like she's the only doper out there, the only person to miss three tests. Harvard's Gabby Thomas has missed three tests. She's got an excuse, but let's, you know, she missed definitely missed two. And, well, I don't know. She got any excuse in that. So, I mean, Cushion Coleman, whatever. There was also three whereabouts there, but technically it was in 12 months, but it didn't count as 12 months because of some obscure rule. But, you know, Gabby Thomas is the best example. Apparently this is not abnormal. People, I was outraged to hear that she had missed three tests and was allowed to compete at Worlds, but Gabby Thomas's third best test was September of 2019. She was suspended in May of this year. That also was eight months. So this wasn't some special thing where they were trying to give this superstar, you know, a pass. Um, I think this is the way they always operate. It's just not the way, the way, in my opinion, they should operate. You film it when you go to the place. As I said, in the Gabby Thomas case, they need to be having cell phone footage, you know, footage of them going to the place where they're trying to test, knocking on the door. They don't answer. This is one. Here we go. Here's the date. Here's the newspaper. Two, three. You missed three. Sorry, you're gone. And it should be within a week or two. Yeah, I mean, and this is here's what you get here's the worst case scenario is someone who was face sitting on three missed tests goes to worlds has one of the performances of the meet wins the gold medal and now you're going to have to be in a position if this band's upheld you're going to have to take away that gold medal and i understand johnny you don't want to make a mistake because it's you could have huge financial implications if you falsely prevent someone from competing in the olympics and put yourself out for huge liability but at the same time you don't want to have someone win and then years later weeks later months later whatever you know have it the other thing that was weird to me is she said you know i'm never i'm not a cheat um you know i, I missed three tests which is normal the normal comment has angered a lot of people um hey i guess you know she certainly isn't the only person to miss one i mean didn't mo fair miss two his doorbell wasn't he didn't hear the doorbell so three hey it's a little bit more than most but I think the way I see it is one missed test. Everyone, anyone can miss one missed test, but then you got to be super careful after that. Two, you're starting to get careless, and if you you're sitting on two and you miss a third, that's reckless. But then here's the other thing: what if you miss your second and you don't know you've missed your second, and then you miss a third? You know, and that could be that could be someone's excuse is like I didn't know I had two missed tests. I thought I still only had one. It, you know, it's still it's still pretty careless. But I, the one thing I want to say on this. The AIU, they don't have an easy job. I mean, they're trying to catch cheats, trying to balance the two parts of their job, which is catching cheats while protecting clean athletes. That's a difficult balance to strike. And I think 
that has to be stated that it's not an easy job. I think they're doing pretty well overall, but this is obviously a tough situation. Yes, and that's, and that's what I said on the Gabby Thomas situation. I said if a Harvard grad can't figure out how to, to get her test, then our sport's in trouble because then it's too onerous on the athletes or something. I mean, come on. But uh, I, I'm disappointed in this. I loved her reaction when she won. She looked so shocked. People always say, oh, you can tell if they're a doper by how they react. I thought her reaction was pure joy. I actually liked it. Another thing we need to talk about, John, is the agent. You called up Juan Panetta. Now, this seemed weird to me. So you call him up to get a reaction from him, and he's had some fast Kenyans been popped for drugs and some other people. You can go through the list. But he said he didn't know that she had been suspended. You you broke the news to him? How can that be? How could he have not gotten text messages or tweets? Please explain that to me. His explanation was that everything has been handled through the Bahraini Federation and that they would be the ones who heard about this and – he didn't receive any communications about it. You can decide whether to believe that or not, but that's what he told me. Well, I don't know why he would make that up. How does that mean? It doesn't make him look good. It's just a weird thing to me that you broke the news. Although I guess when, when back in the day when, when Bernard Lagat um, was uh, briefly suspended for an EPO violation when Weldon called Coach James Lee, right, Weldon? He hadn't heard about it either? Well, Robert, I'm surprised you remember that. He was... Not deemed to have a violation, but Bernard Lagat had an A test positive for EPO. What year was this? Probably like 2003, five? I'm not sure. 2003. And yeah, I called up James Lee. I mean, I was still training in Flagstaff at the time, and I was just shocked. And I knew Lagat a little bit, not really, but I, I think they had come up in Flag and we'd done a run one time, him and Abdi and stuff. I mean, I'd gone down to Tucson. And James Lee was like, what are you talking about? And I was just sort of shocked. But the internet wasn't as common. You know, like, now I feel like everything's so instant. Like, this is 17 years later. I'm just even more shocked the coach couldn't know something. And maybe, you know, something gets lost and they don't want to talk about it. And that's just what they say. But who knows? So, I mean, maybe go through, the John, the list of people coached. I don't know. Do we want this, like, guilt by association? Everyone should be treated by their own each case should be treated on its own merits. Like, But I could just read from Wikipedia right now. Nassar began working with former Bulgarian athlete Yanko Bratanov, who also coached fellow Nigerian-Bahrainian athletes Kimi Akekoya and Samuel Francis, both later banned for doping. I guess that's just it is what it is. People are going to be more suspicious, right? If you're with a coach who has had athletes tested positive or an agent who's had tested positive and some agents are very hands-off you know and and, i don't know what to think of this but i think the bigger picture is right people need trust in the systems any sort of system that's going to rule or judiciate i mean obviously we're seeing much serious issues in the united states right now but like for us to trust the athletics integrity unit which is its own sort of justice system people i think we we would like a quicker form of announcing of sanctions, that sort of stuff. Sure, you got to dot your I's and cross your T's, but waiting this long and then there's a fourth test, people are like, hey, what's going on? Just, you know, why can't this be done quicker? It's not like, what do you have to analyze for eight months or six months, whatever it is? Well, well, and you mentioned the Legat thing. Actually, this something similar happened last summer is someone told me that Brianna Williams, uh, the Jamaican sprint star, that she had had an adverse analytical finding for, I think it was some cold medicine or something she had taken at the Jamaican trials. And I told this to Ado Bolden, her coach, and he didn't know about that. 
and that only came out, you know, that was broken a couple of days later. So I think, you know, the coaches and the agents don't always know everything that's going on. And I mean, maybe it's like when someone's cheating on their boyfriend or girlfriend, it seems like the boyfriend or girlfriend's always the last person to know. All the other friends <laughs> seem to know people talk about it, but they don't actually talk about it with the person in question. We, we need to get some uh, psychologist on the show. Yeah, well, talking about Juan Pineda specifically, so here are the athletes he's represented who have been banned. Abraham Kiptum briefly held the half-marathon world record. Um, he was busted last year for an ABP violation. Robel Fasija, the European cross-country champion from Sweden, he was represented by Pineda last year. He's no longer represented by Pineda, but he was at the time he tested positive. He's been banned. And then Sadiq Miku of... Bahrain. He also represents Gonzebe Dababa, who has not been banned. But I think the thing I've talked to, I've talked to Juan Pineda about this thing, and I asked him after the Kiptum thing, because the Kiptum case came on the heels of the Miku case. And I said, you know, you've had two athletes suspended in the last, you know, year. You know, do you think that's an issue? Do you worry about your reputation? What would you say to that? And he essentially was like, no, I, I'm not worried about this. Why would I be worried about my reputation? Like, I don't have anything to do with their doping. They don't, you know, he represents dozens of athletes. Most of them are not in Spain, which is where he, he lives, I believe. They're, and he's like, look, I don't see these guys day to day. It's not, I, I don't, I, I can't be concerned about that. You know, that those are their own choices, essentially. And I, I think there's a degree of fairness in that where you would say yeah he, you can't the agent's job is not to babysit athletes 24 7 but i would also say once you've had two athletes popped you need to re-examine who you are working with and you need to do better due diligence and question is everything above board because to me i would be worried if i'm constantly representing p athletes who are being suspended for doping. And this is the whole thing we had with the Roses as well. The Roses said, no, they didn't have anything to do with it. It's just sort of unfortunate that their athletes are choosing to dope. But if your athletes are consistently consistently getting busted, you need to think about who you're representing more closely because people will start to judge you. Right. I mean, it could be just Pineda is very hands-off. He's willing to sort of work with these athletes for hire or federations for hire he finds athletes who want to go there and then he just hands them off and it's like you know you guys do what you need to do and the, maybe the federation or the coaches these sort of mercenaries maybe they're mu judged much more on i mean you're going to be judged on results anywhere so the temptation to dope could be bigger and pineda could know nothing about this but at some point if your athletes keep getting popped you're going to it's going to look negatively upon you so maybe then you need to do something to assure the public that you want to combat this problem okay guys we've been talking about this for long enough i think we need to move on but yeah and also he's representing a lot of athletes from countries where there's a lot of poverty and the financial incentives is huge and when you got someone who's switching allegiance they obviously have signaled that money is, is a key factor here so you know that's a that's a big one also we need to mention weldon is being Mr. Dad right now. He's been doing this entire podcast with his daughter strapped to his chest. Weldon, I'm, I'm pretty... I don't know if I'm impressed or dismayed by your multitasking. Actually, I've been doing half. Halfway through, I ran upstairs to steal the baby from my wife. Big day. Big day at the Johnson household. My wife is getting her hair done for the first time in three months. So that, you know, that had to happen during the podcast or not. So I'm in charge now. 
I'm worried that he's talking too loudly close to the baby's ears. It could be permanent hearing damage. I also like to have the spotlight on myself. All right, don't get Weldon riled up then. Don't say anything that would Wait, inflame him. Who's, whose parenting book's coming out? Mine is going to come out first and be even more popular. I read in a parenting book last night. The baby becomes a member of the household. You don't, like, cater to the baby. So the baby wants to, you know, little Charlotte wants to be part of the household. She's podcasting. We're making it work. We're making it work. Well, she's listening in. What is her first, what, is her first work going to be Webb or Salazar or... Doper. Doper, yeah, baby. Doper. I mean, whereabouts Doper. violation. Whereabouts violation. I, I realize Weldon talks about that, like... Yeah, I definitely cater to my son, which is unfortunate. But he, he's he's big into drugs. Like when he gets well, sick, we're like, oh, "Do you want the medicine?" He thinks medicine is so good because it tastes good too, and he loves vitamins and medicine. I'm like, "Oh my god, I raised a little Salazar child already, and he's only two. All right, shall we move on? Brown track and field. Brown track is back, baby. The Ivy League once again. Once again, the Heps no longer lives up to its name. It's back to eight teams. People are going to be upset, as a, as John. As an alum of the Ivy League, this is a happy day. I'm, I'm glad Brown's back. People are going to be upset. They're like, why do you guys focus on the Ivy League schools? Yes, the three of us went to the Ivy League. The reason why we focus, I think, is because, one, the track teams in the Ivy League have been there for so long. Brown's men's team was 145 years old. And it got cut because of some made-up reason. It was just it wasn't trouble. made up. It was a Title IX Title IX reasons. The president was very clear about this in her letter that it was the only sport of the 11 that they cut that was for Title IX reasons solely. And the issue is Brown has this agreement where they have to have their roster size, their rosters on their sports teams have to be in line with the overall gender breakdown of the student body, which is 53, 47, 53% women. So, they were like, look, to do this, we need to cut men's track and cross country because that'll bring us in line. Now they realize they, there was an uproar and now they've brought it back, but they've also said the rosters are going to have to look different. So that's going to mean probably men's sports across the board, including cross country and track, will have smaller rosters and they might have to expand some of the women's rosters, but they are bringing it back. I don't know anything about the specifics of this consent decree Brown signed, I think, 20-something plus years ago, but... Coming up with a quota to comply with Title IX, like that's outdated thinking. We need to stop start thinking of people as individuals, not groups. And we don't get to thinking of people as individuals, not groups, by treating them as groups, not individuals. So quotas, I think, are a bad thing. And I owe that I was asking owe that to Will Kane of ESPN. I was listening to his radio show or something driving yesterday. I'm not familiar with him, but that was sort of a line from him. But like discriminating against men in the name of like women's diversity isn't fair. So that's not right. And like the fact that if you have a women's track and field team that that each woman counts three times and that makes your numbers look better. That's not what giving women opportunity at sport is. So Brown, which has 30 sports, it's hard for them to argue that they're discriminating against anyone. Like women have more opportunity at sport at Brown and these Ivy schools than almost at any school in the country and men too. So like, Treat people fairly, equally. Give them opportunity. Okay. Let me interrupt here. They're bound by some legal document. But my question is, when are they going to re-litigate this? It's like Supreme Court decisions become outdated. Plessy versus Ferguson was once the law of the land in this country. And then 
you know, Brown versus Board of Education, right? Or something overturned it. Helped me out with my Supreme Court stuff. But like, yes, this made sense. And they're really, you know, they got in trouble 25 years ago. So they're trying to make sure that their, you know, student athlete ratio matches the student body ratio. But if, what if, what if Brown becomes 70% women? Then should 70% of the women's, of the sports be, be women? But yes, uh, you know, uh, the Brown women's track and field team actually wrote an op-ed in the Brown Daily Herald where the, one of the lead quotes was, the Browns women's track and field alumni demand that Brown athletics and this administration's standards for diversity and inclusion involve more than balancing numbers on a spreadsheet and that their consideration of female athletes but more than a question of legal obligations. So they would have kept men's track in the first place, but they couldn't, or they thought they couldn't because of this ratio number. So now what they're going to have to do is what, Brown's already had to do in some levels is they're going to have to really cut down like the extra two or three walk-ons in the basketball team going to get cut. The extra, the, the cross country roster might be capped at like 18, whereas at Cornell we had 30. And those are all walk-ons, the extra people. They're not recruited athletes. It's just stuff that's basically made up. You're, you've already got people on campus who want to be on the team and then you're just going to cut off all the walk-ons. I, I don't like the way it's implemented. But that's the reality. But let's talk about how this got in. To me, this was too easy. You know, I I, I thought that I felt a little bit guilty playing. I, I took the identity politics. You know, we were outraged by this and played the left's race card. You know, Brown, you're racist if you cut men's track and field. And the president immediately went for that. There's 11 minority students. That's 11. That's only three per year. Think about that. That's not that many minorities. And they're like, oh, my God, we've got to put it back. And I'm glad they did because I do think that the minority, it opens up wonderful experiences for these people. But Brown, couldn't they just have said, like, okay, we're going to let in five more black students a year or something like that. That would have made up for the 11 people. It's amazing that, I don't know, just in this day and age, I mean, this could kind of be a positive of all the these terrible things that have been happening with the police because, man, they didn't, they didn't like that charge at all. And the optics, I mean, I put out a tweet. I felt, a, again, a little guilty for doing it. But I'm like, hey, because they, they made up this stuff about how they're doing for diversity. And I put out that tweet with the sailing team and the track team, and I felt guilty. But, man, that president, she, she didn't have the guts to stand up for herself at all, did she? Robert, I've got to admit, I've got to reel you in here. First of all, accusing the president of not having guts, I mean, I, I give her credit because Christina Paxson, she looked at this. She realized they had made a mistake. She listened to the criticism. She listened to what people were saying, and she reversed course. And I, I commend her for that, her willingness to be open and to to change her mind on that. I think that's commendable. But I think the other thing is, one, you said this is too easy. I mean, this is classic Rojo. You've been campaigning for years. Salazar needs to be banned, get him out of the sport. Then as soon as Salazar's banned, I don't like the way he got banned. We Now, this isn't satisfying to me. We need to get him banned for something else. Like, ridiculous and then the other thing you're essentially taking credit because you claim you played the race card in this tweet and this is sort of what happened i didn't mean to say i i was the i don't say that i was the lead reason okay. but I, I just think that i mean russell dinkins and malcolm gladwell got involved i mean tweeting i mean it's just but the brown alumni it just this was a no-brainer yes i oh no i think she deserves a lot of credit because most people she probably was following the lead of the ad and they were worried about this title nine thing but this is the thing. I'm like, someone needs to stand up to these quotas, particularly the male-female quotas. I think Title IX is a net positive for society, definitely. But I'm like, the way they're implementing this in sports nowadays, particularly men's sports, just doesn't make any sense. I don't think it's fair. And, you know, 
I also, some of this stuff just bothers me. So, yes, you know, the squash and the sailing and the golf teams are privileged sports, and there's sort of a, a high cost barrier of entry to that, which is not open to minorities. So this is why I definitely want a track to stay because they don't have to. You don't have to pay. You know, as we talked about last week, a thousand dollars to go to the track and field camp in the summer. Um, but I don't know. I feel bad for some of these other sports. I mean, I was, I'm, I'm on here reading right now about the women's squash team. They wrote a letter to the to. This is crazy. They've written a letter. I'll bring that up in a minute. Asking to be reinstated. Of course, that's never going to happen. Um, you know, so. I just think this is a win for the alumni and for the friends of the program, like Russell Dinkins, Princeton alum, uh, my graduating class actually at Princeton. Um, you know, even though I didn't go to Princeton, he was my class here. You get what I'm saying? He wrote one of, I think his piece was probably the most influential, influential of anything that got written and published on this. And then you had the Save Brown Track website. You have people working behind the scenes, the old Brown coaches, Brown, Bob and, and Rothenberg. I think they were really doing a lot of legwork on this. I mean, I just think this shows you the power of activism. And these people, they saw something that they wanted to save. They spoke out. They spread a, a message, powerful message, quickly. And it got saved within 12 days. I just think it's a, it's a win for activism. I agree, but I wonder if we're if, if outsiders are giving themselves too much credit. You know, I wonder if most of it was just internal coming from Brown alumni and, and stuff like that. But you know, but I'm reading here's here's the Brown squash team. This is fascinating to me. This team's not worthy. They say we do represent excellence. The Browns women's squash team is a tight knit group of 15 women, among whom only eight are recruited athletes. As a team, we not only see the Brown academic index, which is a combination of your GPA and ACT, SAT scores, but also the average academic standards of the entire university. Our average academic index for the past nine years has approached an estimated 230. For reference, this is the average Brown women's squash team. That's a 1530 SAT with a 4.0 unweighted GPA. 1530 average SAT on the Browns women's squash team. Goodbye. Well, Robert, here's the thing. People are going to use whatever ammunition they can to get their program reinstated. Brown's ammunition was this is a program that has opened a lot of doors for minority athletes that they might not have otherwise been able to access this education through. And losing that is a tragedy. And the Brown women's squash team, they don't have that kind of diversity. So they'll say, hey, you're losing a great academic program. There might be another program where they've had a couple Olympians or they've had more success on the, on the playing field. And they would use that. You know, every team is going to use whatever argument they have at their disposal to make their case. Robert earlier said something like these sports aren't available to minorities, talking about squash and lacrosse and these other sports. And I think it's more accurate to say these sports aren't available to poor people and maybe minorities are disproportionately poor or black people or whatever the thing is, but like forget the optics or the exact language, but the beauty of track and field is it is so accessible to everyone. I mean, maybe sure some of the, I don't know. It's just one of the most accessible sports for anyone. I think that's a strength of our sport and like people of all socioeconomic backgrounds can do track Sure, running shoes cost money and aren't that cheap, and I'm sure cross country might skew more wealthy. But like anyone can go for a run, anyone can sprint, and it's one of the greatest strengths of our sport. So yeah, John, like you said, you played your strengths. Maybe squash is the GPA 
track and field is diversity, but we don't have to fake anything with track and field, like, you know, making numbers look good or what have you. So it's a new card we can play to keep track alive, I think. And I think the result was a good one. Now, maybe before we go forward, like, hey, how do we not cut men's walk-ons who don't really add anything in terms of cost? Like when I was at Yale, essentially the, the talk, this is 20 years ago, was like, any woman who wants to come out, just come out. They can come out like they want to jog. Like if, they, if you can get them on the track team, that makes the numbers look good. And that's not what Title IX is about. It's about opportunity and treating people fairly. So hopefully we can get beyond the numbers. And as a society, we can get to like treating people as individuals, not as a member of a group. And, you know, fixing some of these institutional issues that go way back. Correct. Yeah. Don't let me misunderstand me. I'm thrilled Brown's track is back, and I think it should be back. And I think part of the reason should be the diversity. I just thought I was shocked about how easy it was to play the race card, and then they ran for it because, I mean, it deserved to be played because they said they're doing it for, for diversity. They were doing it for diversity because, yes, the squash team isn't that diverse, although five of the th- 13 women on the roster appear to be not white, but most of them are sort of overly representative groups of Brown, if you talk about quotas in terms of Asians and Indian-looking people. But... You know, I mean, it's just Walden, I think, at one point said, you know, numbers and quotas are bad, but at some level, these schools are all dealing with this problem. If they go just on SATs alone, they're going to have a huge Asian population. And if you let one person, all these schools are have more about val- a lot of these schools have more valedictorians applying than they do spots in the freshman class. So they have to make these difficult choices. And if you let one person in of this group, it's going to be one less of another group. And there's no reality of that. It's unfortunate, you know, the cross country team is all white. So should the, the, you know, they're kind of lucky they're part of the, of the track and field program. I thought about that, Robert. I was like, are they just going to bring back, bring back track and field and not cross country because tr- cross country doesn't solve the diversity issue. But I think they could also argue not having cross country weakens your track and field team because you're not going to be competitive in the distance events and fewer athletes, you know, Maybe it doesn't have a direct effect on getting sprinters, jumpers, throwers, but if they say, hey, we're, we're taking a zero in the distances, what, what's to stop them from going to Dartmouth or Cornell or, or Columbia and saying, hey, we can, we'll be more competitive because we can actually win maybe without but me. I think, you know, and it's hard to, to analyze this in a big picture way without looking at numbers, but I think what these schools should do is look at budgets. And also, particularly in Ivy School, look at the recruited athletes. Who's getting admissions help? Who's not? So, you know, you do a certain number of women that get recruited, a certain number of men that get recruited. You have, you know, the budget. You compare those. But the walk-ons, if there's more interest for men's walk-ons than women's walk-ons, which I think most coaches would say is the case, um, and was certainly the case when I was at Cornell for the track and field program, then, you know, as long as they're not spending that much money on the walk-ons, I, I think that you should fulfill that need. Now, in terms of, uh, to me, the big thing for the Ivy schools is the admission spots um, and the budgets. All right, guys. Well, I think we'll wrap that, move on to our next topic. Impossible games. Thursday. Now, this podcast is going to come out probably late Wednesday night or Thursday morning. Hopefully, you guys are listening to it before the meet. But... What do you guys think? Are you excited for this? We've got Mondo. We've got the Ingebrigtsens. We've got Chariot. We've got Manningoy. We've got Carsten Warholm going for a world record. Does this move the needle for you guys? John, explain to the... Well, I guess the people aren't going to have much time to listen. But this is on TV. Cable TV. It's like back track and field on TV. You don't have to go to the internet to watch it. NBCSN. 
at 2 p.m. Eastern time, Thursday afternoon. To break down the fields real quickly, just, I don't know, we shouldn't talk too much about it because half people are going to listen to it after the thing has already taken place. Yeah, so there are a couple events worth watching. You've got Pole Vault. This is kind of like the, it's not the Backyard Challenge because they're not trying to clear four meters a certain amount of time. It's an actual Pole Vault competition. The problem is Mondo Duplantis is in Oslo and Renault Le Villanais in his backyard in France. But those two are competing. They've had a kind of cool rivalry this year because remember they tied at the backyard uh, garden clash and Mondo wanted to keep going. Le Villanais called it quits. Mondo took Le Villanais world record early this year in the pole vault. So they got a little rivalry going. Uh, 300 meter hurdles. Carson Warholm, the world two-time world champion in the 400 hurdles. He's competing alone. He's going after the 400, the 300 hurdles world record. I'm not actually sure if he's allowed to get it, if he's the only guy in the race. Maybe he is. I don't know. I mean, Cesarek kind of, he ran that 349 mile and he was the only finisher. But anyway, uh, that world record, it's 3448 by Chris Rawlinson of Great Britain. But Warholm's actually run faster in an indoor race, 3426. So I expect him to get that. And then I think for the distance fans, the, the highlight is... Team Ingebrigtsen versus Team Chariot in a 2,000-meter team race. And so you've got all three Ingebrigtsens, Jakob, Henrik, and Philip, and facing Timothy Chariot, Elijah Manigoy, and they've got another guy in their training group, Edwin Melly, who's run 143 for 800. And the top three t- top three times from each country, from each team, will be added together, and the overall winner is the team with the lowest time. Yes, this moves a needle for me, John. I'm excited to see an actual competition on TV. It's different to me if it's on TV. And, you know, I mean, those are definitely the two best pole vaulters in the world, in my opinion. You know, no besides. way. No, Le Villanay, Not He's not even in the top three. He didn't even medal. Lisek's better than him. Kendrick's is better than him. you got to be Robert, maybe like five years ago. Come on, man. Well, if it's an open pole vault, why don't, why aren't, why isn't Kendrick's involved? He can set up a camera and go pole vault. It's a fair question. But I think that, well, the issue is, maybe the delays and like if you're saying if you have the whole round of competition and you're saying all right it's Lavillanay's turn and then it's Kendrick's turn coordinating all of that from like three or five sites might be annoying okay this could be a turning point for the sport because I think a general knock and field for some people is track and field is boring or at least the way it's presented and a bunch of time trials and remote races People could be like, holy crap, this is even more boring. But organizers may be aware of that. So they may be doing everything possible to like soup this up, trick it up. Who knows? Have some music. I don't know what people are going to do. They already but they... have music. At tra- have you been to a trap meet? Well, then they already play music. No, it's usually very, you know, it's like not loud no. enough, that sort of stuff. So I don't know. Track and field is back. PGA golf is back without fans in Texas, but. Outdoor fans are allowed at events up to 25% capacity in Texas. We might we might have track meets in track Texas this spring. Maybe that's the future. Maybe Austin could put on okay. a date or something. First of all, they should have more than 25% back for golf fans. The good news, one of the things, and there was the thread on Let's Run about this, is like, shouldn't we know in about three weeks whether you can be near outdoors near someone with COVID with all these? I mean, the numbers in that protest in LA were amazing. There was Ariel had shot. It was very impressive. So, you know, that's a side discussion. For this track meet, Weldon, I think what we're going to learn is, you know, and, and we had this, I think Michael Johnson brought this up when he was competing as a sprinter, or somebody brought this up. Like, 
you know, in a sprint race, the people, Usain Bolt's making multiples of millions of dollars. The person in lane eight in the final may be scraping by, not making any money. And you see why with this event, because the stars are what drive it. The lane fillers, everybody outside the top three or four is really not that necessary for me to get excited. I'm excited to seeing a Brinson versus Chariot and these Kenyans. And I still don't understand how this is fair. One of them is at 6,000 feet of altitude. One of them is at sea level. How are we expected for any non-African guy to ever beat these Kenyans? How in the hell did Matthew Centrowitz beat them if we think it's fair for In- Ingebrigtsen to run at sea level? Ooh, Robert, but are we learning life isn't fair? I think that's a big thing we're learning right now. Sports aren't fair. Oh, I don't even want to get, ooh, this could... The optics of this, who is it most unfair for? What color are they? I didn't think about this. Careful, careful. <laughs> oh, no, oh, no. It totally also, is You've got to be careful also what you joke about these days. Oh, yeah, but, I don't know. But did you guys see... Oh, hell, I'm going to mention it. There was a thread on Let's Run. There was some, um, like a car race in, I think, North Carolina. And they had 2,000 people come out for it. And they branded it as a protest when i first read this i thought it was an onion article i'm like you got to just shake your head man like that's not what the protests are about but i think we are going to have a lot more data from the protest and people just saying fuck the rules excuse my language um about can we have events sooner than we hoped or the other thing is we're not probably have events till much later than some of us hoped so for the interim time period these socially distanced events are what we're going to have and i'm just glad to see one happening yeah that car race was kind of crazy i mean some level you were i guess it was so kind of brilliantly thought out to to pull it off but another level is disrespectful to say that it's a protest when it's not but i was looking at the pictures of the crowd no one's wearing a damn mask i still understand it why people think that it's their god-given right not to wear a mask if you're sitting next to somebody while we still have this disease yes the disease is way down yes the media loves to do fear porn they probably over exaggerated some of this the, the threats and you know the who says this week or a spokesperson says you know, the asymptomatic transmission is very rare. And then she walks that back after there's a media uproar the next day. So I can understand why people are skeptical, but people are still dying of the disease. I've said this before. I would like the society to open up. But if you're sitting next to a stranger, wear a goddamn mask. Like, Bro, I, I don't understand don't, it. How can you not understand? You've lived in this country for how long? Americans freaking love their freedom. They're going to do the whole thing about Americans. Not well. All right. Not everyone thinks that was this way, but I would say a significant amount of them just think i'm gonna do whatever the hell i want i'm an american i'm free that gives me the right to do whatever the hell i want and that's why you see people just saying i'm not gonna wear a mask it's my it's my right not to wear a mask you know even though you have mask regulations in a lot of these places well i think i i love freedom as the right person but when your freedom starts hurting somebody else you know it stops i absolutely agree but i would i think there are a lot of people who who disagree with that well this goes you know i mean don't get me started. I'm still mad. See, at that gets to, like that. This is the whole gun debate, right? This is the whole gun debate. We don't need to get into it, but that's what we're talking about. Anyway, to go back to the race, I do think, obviously, Team Chariot is at a disadvantage with Chariot and Manningoy, but uh, being at altitude. But I think they know that. They're, just, they're trying to make this event work. They're trying to have fun. I don't think if people say, oh, the Ingebrigtsen's win, that means they're the better training group. They must be better. I think this is just a fun opportunity to get people excited, and I know I'm excited about it. And some of the performances that have been done in altitude are, are amazing. Some of these Kenyans don't seem to be that affected. I mean, I think they've run like 27, like 18 at altitude or something crazy. 
1968 Olympics, Kip Kaner ran 334. Yeah, so, you know, and, and the Coach Uma, John, by the way, has a feature up with Coach Uma. He spoke to him. It's fantastic. Go to the website and see it. Check the show notes. And I was fascinated by this. He says, well, you know, the guys aren't in top shape, particularly uh, Manangoy, and but he thinks that somebody can break 450 for 2,000, which is crazy. But I'm most excited about this, folks. He says that it's not one of his reigning world champions. He's got two world championships in the team, a Manangoy and Chariot. He says the best guy in shape right now, and he expects them to beat them, is a guy named Edwin Melly. This is a guy that 18-year-old in 2012 ran 143. That was eight years ago. Hasn't done really anything since. And now he's joined up, supposedly he's healthy, and could be better than all of them. That's crazy. Well, I, I don't think he's saying he's better than all of them. He's saying that he's been tra- he kept training through the lockdown and everything, and the other guys went back home to their farms and took a little time off and you know, what doing serious workouts, but he does think he's a big talent. I think he thinks, you know, this guy, Edwin Melly, who, like you said, huge talent as a junior and then battled a bunch of injuries for a few years. He thinks he could be a factor on the diamond league circuit. So it'll be interesting to see what we can get from him this year and, and next year. You guys should have hyped that up better, man. Like I'm looking at the headline and let's run. You guys gotta. You gotta I go teased it in our in our Twitter post. It was in there. I, it's I'm just talking about the, the headline on the homepage, man. Read the thing a, below the headline. What does that say? People look at the headlines, John. Plus, what does he think about breaking? Find out. Learn about the new member of Wrong Athletics Club who Uma says is stronger than Manigault and Chariot right now. I mean, it's in the subhead. Sorry, it's not headlines limited. No, we space. should have written it as a separate article. Almost. I'm actually looking up his results. So in 2012. He kind of burst on the scene, gets third at World Juniors, um, second at the Istat Berlin meet, second in Rieti, runs 143 at the end of the season in Rieti, September 9th. And then after that, I mean, he's been racing every year, 144 the next year, 145 the next year, 144 the next year. 2016, he runs 145.20, 148, 145, 145, 00. So he's put up a mark in the 800. Um, every year, and then doesn't really pick up the 1500. Ran a 348 in 2016, but in 2019 he ran 336. So it's kind of interesting that he's healthy enough to run. I mean, I'm looking at it, a bunch of 800s. I mean, every year he's got at least five 800s. I guess some of them are, are rounds of the championship and stuff like that, but good to see him healthy. All right, so John, we're going to discuss Second Amendment now. Should we defund the police and take people's guns away? That's the topic coming up next. Actually, somewhat related to that, do we need to defend our, uh, one of us, Jacob Fry? He's a was a professional runner for Hanson Brooks. He's the mayor of Minneapolis. I think he's only 36 years of age, maybe 38. And people... Uh, it's okay to, I guess, discriminate against someone on their looks or age because people in commentators... No, this is think, a whole discussion. It's not okay to discriminate on someone on their looks. Well, commentators on the TV, they're like the 12-year-old boy mayor, that sort of stuff. But we're obviously trying to stay away a bit from, I think, social issues in this politics. We had addressed George Floyd last week and a little bit on the podcast. But, I mean, this guy's... He was like essentially like a core let's run guy like an olympic trials runner hoping to be better and and now like uh, he's in just such a tough spot because he was out there sort of doing the mea culpa saying all the stuff and i think people were in front of his house and then they're like 
the protesters are like, are you for defunding the police? And he's like, uh, no. And they're just like, F you, boot him. <laughs> but defund the police? How about we need police at some extent? Maybe you disband some police forces and bring them back. But I, like Joe Biden, Nancy Pelosi, leaders on the left, no one's really for getting rid of police function in society, I don't think. But I, I don't know. Do you guys need to shout some words of encouragement? Well, I, I think from what I understand, defund the police is not the same thing as disband the police. But they are, you know, I, th- I think they did end up defunding the police in Minneapolis. They're looking at different community safety options. But I do agree. He Look, he was in a really tough spot. You got all these protesters on your lawn. They're demanding you make this drastic change. And then if you don't say if you don't admit to that. They're going to say, fuck you and tell you to go home. If you do admit to it, it's going to be a huge national news story. A ton of other people are going to be pissed off. And if you ever go up and back on it, people will say that you're you know, a flip-flopper. So I don't envy his position, but yeah, I'd probably do what he would have said. I would have said, no, I'm not going to defund. I won't commit to defunding them right now, but just because an angry mob is demanding I do so, you know, it's just what you got to do. He's in a very tough spot. I commend him for saying something that's rational and logical. I mean, I, 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 sometimes we have this cancel culture. Sometimes you've got to give in to the mob, but if it makes sense, kudos to the Brown University president for saying, wait a minute, we're not, we would have never cut men's track. It's a diverse team, but we, we, we were worried about this lawsuit. We can figure this out. Let's do it. You know, and I think the talk should be here. We need a drastic overhaul of policing. I think it's just way too militarized. We have, you have no, no not warrants and people knock down your door and all this stuff. So we have bad police. We want to reform the police, but we need law and order. I mean, you know, people to put this in perspective, I put this link up on the, on the, on the homepage earlier in the week in Kenya, the police are basically like an extrajudicial force. They've killed 15 people cold dead since the COVID-19 quarantine stigma. Like if you're outside, boom, you're dead. So. You know, this is a worldwide problem. I honestly, people don't want to hear this. I would say that if you, I, I, do I think racist police are a problem? Yes. Which do I think is a bigger problem? Just bad police or racist police? I would say the bigger problem is just angry police. They think the 75-year-old man we're talking about in Buffalo was white. So it's, they're both issues. So let's change the police, but we can't have insanity. Like, come on, people. You're never going to f- satisfy everyone on Twitter. Twitter is not the real world. This brings me to the email of the week, guys. We got some praise. It's about someone listening to the podcast last week. Hey, Robert Weldon and Jonathan. At the beginning of the last week podcast, Roger began to address the George Floyd movement and said, I'm not sure that everyone wants to hear from three white guys talk about it. The second I heard this and thought you were going to brush over the matter, my mind started writing an angry email. But then when I heard all of you go on for the next four minutes to not just bring awareness to the issue, but also to make a stand, to take a stand against racism, my angry email quickly disappeared into my mental recycle bin. But I still need to feel the need to write in. I'm an American currently living in Germany. And in my time here, I've noticed something different about the, how the people deal with their country's dark history. I don't want to compare the severity of darkness of each respective country's past, only to show how they've progressed from it. Germans today are acutely aware of their history. They are reluctant to express national pride. They treat Nazi symbolism as a jailable offense, and they are thoroughly educated about the atrocities of their ancestors. The U.S. is different. We boast of how great our nation is. The Confederate flag still flies. There remains many statutes of Confederate heroes, and we are truly not taught of the struggle of black Americans. The contrast is stark and unsettling. Now is a time more than ever for three white guys to talk about racism. Black Lives Matter is not a new movement, but is new for many of us white men in this country. In recent times, since the civil rights 
movement has never been at the forefront of society's attention, let alone our own minds. It's important for prominent white men like yourselves to do what you did over the last podcast to make a strong statement. This movement will not have success if it's not brought to a white male America. Again, I want to recognize how you handled it in the last podcast. I found those four minutes very respectful and meaningful. Don't, please don't underestimate how important your voice is for the movement. Keep up the great work, James. Great email, James. Thank you. Should we have a new segment where Robert toots her own horn every week? I mean, <laughs> no, we, we I'm get not, sponsors what for that. What do you that? mean new segment, Weldon? <laughs> no, but I mean, like, make it a regular thing. Like the Alberto. Alberto I think you already have made it a regular thing, to be honest. <laughs> I brought it up because I thought it was interesting, the Germany thing. You know, th- this. Yeah, that's why you brought it up. No. A couple points, couple points, couple points. Even with the Jacob Fry thing and stuff. And, like, what are. I think society is showing now a lot of it's been symbolic. There's been a lot of rage. We're seeing that. But up to this point, we're seeing a lot of symbolism, kneeling. People want to kneel. They go out and protest, express their displeasure. And I think pretty much like universally, people are against racism in America, police brutality in America. And we're seeing that. And also like white voice are saying, yeah, I'm against this. I'm sick of this. I'm fed up with this. But the next question is like, what actions do people take? Symbolism becomes cheap. And if we all just like, oh, I did the blackout thing on the social media, I kneeled, that doesn't solve the problem. So like, what steps do we take? And people are going to have, now we're going to have a problem because people want different things. But it seems like, oh, some steps are being taken for police reform. Okay, yeah, we want these chokeholds gone. Then what's the next problem we tackle? So getting beyond the symbolism is good. I think the symbolism is important because it shows like, hey, White people, black people, brown people, green people, everybody, orange people. Oh, I don't know if I should use orange people because there's only one orange person, right? But we all care about this. Don't we forget don't... about the Oompa Loompas, Weldon. The Oompa Loompas. So beyond symbolism is going to be the next step. And I think that's where it becomes difficult. And we don't want it just to be symbols. like Because some of it becomes like, oh, you did the right symbol. You're on the right side. You know, it's careful sort of... We, we want actions. Actions are much harder, but they also speak much more than words and symbols. Okay. Shall we return to running topics? We had some world records last week on the treadmill. Chosky challenge. Sarah Hall set a treadmill world record in the half marathon. John Ranieri treadmill half treadmill world record in the half marathon. Actually men's and women's marathon half and 50 K and hundred K. So, Lots of records. The the one that stood out to me were these half marathon records, though. Sarah Hall, 69.03, which is only five seconds slower than her outright PR. And John Ranieri ran 63.08. Now, he's a guy who's run sub-62, you know, on the, on the roads. But he ran this at, in Flagstaff at 7,000 feet, which was really impressive to me. I mean, did, did were you guys as blown away by that time as I was, 63.08 at, at 7,000 feet? Yes and no. One, I started reading some thread, and someone's like, hey, his garage is sloped downhill. His treadmill's on that. I mean, people start pointing. People in that trend notice. I don't know if that's actually the case. but Oh, like, the like, message boards. They never. You there's some arguments, right, that treadmill salutes. running. I mean, you don't have the wind resistance. You can run faster on a treadmill. I mean, just there, yes. there's some debate. But, like, the records were so soft. I'm not that shocked by the times or that sort of stuff. But with Ranieri... I thought it was impressive because what he did was he put the treadmill, I think three minutes a kilometer was as fast as it goes. 
And he just put it as fast as it went and ran as hard as he could for to the half marathon. So he probably could have gone a lot faster, but the treadmill didn't go any faster. The fact that every well, some of the records were just so ridiculously soft, but like they didn't break every record they went for, they got. So at least now the half marathon records are somewhat respectable. I mean, the treadmill records. At, uh, just well, I think sixty three oh eight as an overall record, it's still not that impressive because obviously we know Ranieri could have gone a ton faster if he was out. You get someone at sea level, I think they can take a few minutes off that mark. But yeah, I think the Sarah Hall one's pretty respectable now. Wait, isn't she in Flagstaff too? Where was she? She did it in Phoenix, but she also has been. She hasn't been training for the half. Like she hasn't been training seriously for this thing, and she kind of did this on a lock. Yeah, I, I just personally, I'm not really that interested in treadmill world records. I find them gimmicky. I want to see real running. Um, but during COVID, it, it was a. I'm glad the Chasky Challenge, Tyler Andrews, they put on this event. I guess Tyler got the half marathon and 50k world. You no, know, he got the marathon. I mean, the marathon. The, it's the fastest any human has ever covered 50 kilometers on foot because. He ran 242.56, which not only bet, beat the old treadmill record, but also beat the overall road record. Now, he, he's acknowledged that treadmill's faster, and that road record was by Thompson Magawana in 1988, and it was actually part of the Two Oceans Marathon, which is 56K, so it was an en-route time. So there's a lot of qualifiers. I mean, people don't really race the 50K that much because I was talking to Steel Town li- podcast listener, Steel Town Runner, and he was like, look, 50K is only five miles longer than a marathon. So the best marathoners could step up and run a really fast 50K. And for the ultra runners, it's kind of too short for them, you know? So it's not really a race distance that's run that much, but still 217 marathon and then run another five miles. Pretty impressive running by Tyler Andrews. I did receive an interesting email from a British website visitor who wanted us to look into the certification of these treadmill records. John, like, is there sort of any standards? Do they follow like the Guinness World Record standards? Like, who could you have like a treadmill that wasn't like the right distance? You know, could I was off? told by Tyler that all of the treadmills were tested beforehand or were going to be tested beforehand to make sure that the distance was correct and that they were filmed to make sure there was no irregularities. I don't have confirmation that all of this stuff happened, but I was told it was going to. Yeah. And what were the marathon records now, John? Just I think it's good to mention it. Yeah, the marathon records. Tyler Andrews, 217.56. He broke it by almost three minutes. The women's marathon, I don't think there was, they didn't know of an official record. Again, official record is a little bit of a misnomer because I don't think there's a body that actually counts all this stuff, but they didn't know of an old record. So Rene Mativier ran 240.55 en route to a 311.42.50K. Both of those were world records. How did they not know of a marathon? Someone had to run it, right? Because they had 50K record. I mean, it's kind of crazy that nobody thought, what's the marathon women's world record? Shows sort of how obscure this concept is. I mean, people, not a lot of people were running treadmill marathons on treadmills before COVID. Like this 50K world record that Andrews broke, this was the fourth time it's been broken in 2020 alone. I mean, people just don't have anything else to do. Speaking of half marathons, guys, on last week's podcast, we had a new fun segment. When we drop down to the high school ranks, Joe Fast of Canada, he's going to be a freshman at Princeton this fall if there's school, came onto the show and had some hot takes. And it's interesting because he was born after Alan Webb's 353, but he's a big track fan. He's like, look, Webb had the best best uh, career of the, of the big three. And one of his arguments was like, look, 5943 is good, but think about how many Kenyans and East Africans can run that. 
how many you know people can reach Alan Webb's performance. So I decided to do a little research. I'm gonna, I'll probably try to embarrass Weldon first because I'm afraid John will know the answers. John seems to know the answers to everything. Um, so 59.43, Weldon, do you have any idea? I'm going to make Weldon guess first, and then John can go second. How many people have run 59.43 in world history? How many people? Yes. 112. Jonathan? 78. And what about uh, 330? We're converting Alan Webb's 346 mile to a 330 flat, 1500? 330 flat or faster or 330.99? 330.00. Oh, um, that's got to be lower. I'd have to say 35. Perfect. I was going to say 33 or 26. Now I'll go prices right. Or just box them in 33. Why not say 34? Well, then that's foolish. I just wasn't sure. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not totally rigging the game. You know, I'm being somewhat honest. You're just playing defense. I respect that. Hey, I guess you guessed first on the first one. What did you guess, John? I guess 35 guys sub 330 or 330 or faster. You guys are sick. 139 men have, broken, have run 59.43 or faster. Oh, wow. That's actually, I was way off on that one. But 330 or faster, it's amazing. The 33rd person in the world has run 330.01. So 32 people have run 330 or faster. Oh, well, then, off by one. I win both contests. Thank you. Thank you. That's my daughter. I'm feeding and I'm feeding a baby at this exact same time. Pretty amazing. So I guess he's right. Like I well, have... well, then you, you got that right. But I just wanted to check. Uh, can you tell me who won last year's NCAA cross country title? That long pause you heard is Weldon's utter embarrassment. No, that was me. <laughs> the baby was crying. I swear, not Google. Oh, sure, sure. Arkansas women, BYU men. Oh, we got it. I, well, you had me worried there. I hope you, that wasn't you looking up Wikipedia and it actually was you uh, feeding your daughter. John, since y'all are on me for praising ourselves too much, I'm going to praise you, John. I like to praise you. Then. Can, I, can I praise you every week and not get in trouble? I have no issue with that. And we've also proven last week, if we praise Jonathan, maybe I'll be invited to be a special guest on the podcast, etc. Anyways, I was interested. What do you mean special guest? You're, you're a host. Well, I know, but I'm just kidding. Joe Fast praised you for being one of the... Oh, right, right. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Inside joke, people, if you don't know what we're talking about, go back and listen to last week's podcast. But every Thursday, John has been writing a column on Let's Learn called The Throwback Thursday, where he goes back and watches a race from the past. And this week's was, I was bored, so I watched Joe Bonoit Samuelson win the 1984 Olympic Marathon. And there was something in there that was really fascinating to me. In 1984... The U.S. Olympic marathon trials were held just 12 weeks before the Olympic Games. But back then, it wasn't uncommon. I didn't realize this. Like, when Frank Shorter won gold in 1972, the marathon trials were held on John July 9th. The Olympic marathon was just nine weeks later. So when we talk about people, oh, my God, these people can't run three marathons in a year. And I guess back then, they weren't running that fast. But people were running marathons all the time and quite well, at least Olympic level. Well, I mean, middle the times Joni... Well, Joni would probably be pretty competitive in a summer marathon with her time, but Frank might not be. Well, the the other things that blew me away from that article, which it was really fun. I didn't get to rewatch the entire race, unfortunately, because I couldn't find it on YouTube, but I found a decent portions. Well, one, Joni just blew everyone away. She took off at three miles against the greatest marathon field ever assembled to that point and just destroyed him in the heat. I mean, that was... That was like just an insane performance. Uh, you know, even Kipchoge waits to kick on people, but 
yeah, th that was ridiculous. Then the other two things, they had a commercial for McDonald's ill-fated 1984 Olympic ad campaign where they they gave away scratch tickets with every time, you know, every purchase you had. And if they had an Olympic event on the scratch ticket, and if an American won a medal or in that event, you got free food. And because of the Soviet and Eastern Bloc boycott, the Americans set a record for gold medals, and so they just lost a ton of money on that promotion, which I thought was really funny, and the Simpsons did a good joke on that. But then the other thing, Julie Brown, another American on the marathon team, in 1980, she qualified for the Olympic team in the 800 meters. Now, there was no... The U.S. didn't go to that Olympics, obviously, and they already knew that at the time of the trials, but she finished second in the 800 at the 1980 Olympic trials. Four years later, she makes the marathon team. I just found that utterly amazing. Shouldn't she be in, been in an American goat competition, John? What are her PRs? That's amazing. Yeah, she ran two flat and 407 that year. I, I think her PR was, was two flat. And she also ran 226 in the marathon. But the, the reason why she was running the 8 and 15 at the 1980 trials is because until 1984... The 1500 was the longest women's distance event at the Olympics. So she was boxed in. But she, it, I don't know. Could you ever imagine? Ajay Wilson was second at the 2016 Olympic trials in the US. Could you ever imagine her making the marathon team four years later? It's just, a, it's absurd. Answer no, I could not. Well, I'll keep bringing up just things off the top of my head that I want to talk about. There was an interesting article that I put on the homepage last week from the Times Union on Nicole Blood, former high school phenom, and I think won four or five Pac-10 championships at Oregon and was Pac-12 championships and was like a nine-time All-American. Now was, known as Nicole Freitag, I believe. Yes, married. And she's now a, UV, a coach for Vinland Anna, her old boss, her old coach at Oregon. She's now one of the assistants at um, UVA and. I keep waiting for them to make the ACC even more loaded because Vin's been very incredibly successful. I mean, second, John, I guess John would know this better than that. When Vin Atlanta was at Dartmouth with no scholarships, they were second in the country in cross country. Two years in a row, Robert, 86 and 87. So anyways, but there's just an article about how she tried to run post-collegiately and she eventually just decided she was not thriving and not succeeding. And it was interesting to what made her realize that. And I thought this was perfect. She, she told the reporter, the more the try, the more I tried to force it, the worse it got. And running at some point of every race, it starts to hurt. And you normally make a subconscious decision of like, I'm going for it. But once you get to a point in a race that you actually have to think about it and you're not going for it, then the fire is out. I agree. It's kind of like, I think when you're really motivated, you just do it. And then, when you're not so motivated, you question yourself. You're like, do I want to do it? And along those lines, John, I was doing one of my second track workouts to try to earn my $500 bonus from you. Wait, does this bet, this is Schrodinger's bet right now. Does the, it sounds like you're only taking this bet if you actually do it. And if you don't do it, you're not having, you're not going to have to pay me. I don't know what the status is. I have, is. haven't officially accepted it, but. I was doing, guys, I mean, John, I just want to let you get you a little scared. I mean, if, if I break a three-hour marathon, I'm going to brag about it, obviously. I like to brag, period, so why wouldn't I brag at your expense? I was doing eight by 600, and it kind of got hard. Like, I, I remember thinking at one point, do I want to do this? And I did do it. I forced myself to do it. It wasn't too bad. But then I read this article like the next day. I said, oh, my God, am I going to wimp out now and quit? And I was wondering, 
Like the girl from Hawaii in our high school training program, I'm currently breaking, trying to break 20 minutes for 5,000. And I was like, okay. And John Kelly's like, yeah, you're not that far away from doing that. I'm like, really? Because I can barely run eight, 600 with tons of rest at that pace. He said, yeah, the weather was good. It was really hot. So I was like, okay, and I'm probably pretty close to three. And I looked on the conversion chart. It's nowhere close to three. It's like you got to run an 18-minute 5,000 to be able to break a three-hour marathon. So I'm like, it's not easy. I'm like a minute, a mile off. I'm like 320, maybe. I know what you're saying though, but Robert, with the the mental thing that you and Nicole, you know, were talking about, I get it because now when I go, I still try to do like a tempo run every week. I do a few workouts. I don't really race much anymore, but when I do it, I, I mean, tempos, they can be hard. Sometimes they hurt and I get towards the end and I'm like, should I just call it call the short and end the workout? Like, am I did I go out too hard? Am I pushing myself too hard? Whereas in college, I would just be like, that would never enter my mind. I just go as hard as I could and like try to hold on. And maybe sometimes I went too hard in a tempo, but I'd be like, I'm not getting dropped. Like, I'm gonna work hard in this workout and it's gonna hurt and that sort of thing. And now I'm like, ah, if I'm you know if I'm really hiding 20 minutes into a 30 minute tempo, I'll be like, I think I misjudged this. There's, I'm not getting a benefit from doing this anymore in the last 10 minutes. So I don't know if that makes me a quitter, but I, I definitely relate to what you're saying. All right, guys, I'll keep it rolling. I'm going to talk a little bit now about white privilege. I didn't bring this up last week because I thought it might be a little insensitive in the timing and everything, but this is interesting to me. I've always said, well, I've always said just in general, I thought it would be really hard to be a black to be well, you know, it'd be hard to be black in the sense of like I think sometimes if I go to a restaurant, someone treats me. This is actually one of the definitions of white privilege. If I go to a restaurant and the waiter's an asshole, I'm like, oh, the waiter's just an asshole. But if you're a minority and you go to the restaurant and the waiter's an asshole, you you, you may not realize that the waiters are often assholes to white people too. But you think, wow, they're racist waiter. They're a racist waiter. So you know and. You know, I, I recognize that fact. And I always say, like, if I was black, I'd either be, I might be really angry about some of this stuff. So, um, but I, I actually think that, and I'm worried now with some of the stuff that we're going to be, we're creating, like, people are going to think it's bigger problem. The racial part is bigger than the actual asshole part. But I don't know, because, you know, it's just a difficult thing. It's oh, very, where are you going with this? You're meandering. Yes. The example is, remember a few weeks ago, we had Madeline Manning Mims on the podcast and I was blown away that there was an Olympic champion from 1968 who I had never heard of. And when we had her on the podcast, Walden's like, okay, you had so many accomplishments. This woman was basically the U S record holder from 68 to 80. Amazing woman. Walden's like, I don't know where to begin. And I interrupted and said, Oh, I know where to begin. How is it possible, Madeline, that I've never heard of you? I run a prominent wedding website and I'm like, is this some, I immediately thought this must be racism and or sexism. But then, you know, and that's what I thought. And I you know this is, it's rare that a white person, you know, well, it's only fast forward the next story. But then last week, right, maybe it was 10 days ago, two weeks ago, we had a white Olympic champion, the sprinter from Texas. His name is, Double Olympic, triple Olympic champion. Bobby Morrow. Yes, Bobby Morrow. Guys, there's only been like four people in history that have won the 100, 200, and 4 by one of the same Olympics. Usain Bolt, household name. Carl Lewis. Jesse Owens. Bobby Morrow. Wait, didn't Valerie Bozov do it as well? Right. 
Anyways, everyone who's done it is an incredible household legend, yet there's a white guy from Texas where I'm from. I've never heard of him. So it probably wasn't a racial thing as to why Madeline Mims was someone I hadn't heard. It's just that it was before my era. It was before TV was big. Both these people competed at the Olympics far away. And I don't know. So it was just an interesting article. This is just an interesting example of you don't know what is a racial thing. You don't know what is a sex thing. Um, you know, maybe it, those had a role. I'm just, this. I just thought this was interesting. You know what I'm saying? I immediately assumed it was a racial thing with Madeline Mims. But then I'm like, wait a minute. There's this white sprinter from my own home state that I'd never heard of either. So do you understand what I'm getting at, John? Yeah, I just, I don't know. Do we, I, I guess I'm I'm not sure that the reason Bobby Morrow was, I, I, I think your whole point is maybe I, we don't know how these things get forgotten always because Bobby Morrow, maybe he got forgotten because it was in 1956 in Melbourne. I mean, do you think he'd be remembered better if he was, if he was black, Robert? No, I think Robert's saying that we should be careful in citing a motive to why something is done. Okay. Yeah. I think that's a fair point, but I'm kind of shocked this Bobby Morrow guy. Like, yeah, how come he was not more well known? Like I heard of the name and that's about it. I would not have told you he was a, what triple Olympic champion. It's just kind of crazy. Is it because he didn't set records? And also, like, I don't know, just the concept of a white sprinter is so strange nowadays, which maybe is Matthew Bowling, or baby. stereotypes Matt, or something. We were robbed of Matthew Bowling at NCAA, NCAAs this week. It's just sort of interesting how some champs don't get as much press or whatever. I think Madeline was saying just the women Olympic winners of 68 just got way less attention. So, so it was sexism. So, hey. Well, yeah. I mean, you're never going to know, right? We just want a more just society. Try to treat people individually. And we've got some groups that obviously have suffered from history a lot more than others. And we need to be mindful of that. Right. And I mean, I I think that and one of the things I'm proud of about Let's Run is how we do promote the African runners as stars, because it's kind of interesting in general, like someone can be training in America, doing great things, and nobody really pays that much attention to him. Bernard Lugat, yeah, he was great. But then the moment he comes to America, oh, my God, nothing really changed. I mean, he competed in 80 in... People care, naturally going to care more in the United States about him when he's wearing the USA singlet. I mean, how, what can you, how can you say nothing changed? Well, I'm saying he competed as an American citizen in another Olympics. Admittedly, nobody knew about it, but... Yeah, no one knew about it. I mean, when he won the world title in the 1500, he was the first American to do that, to win a global 1500 title in 99 years. Kenyans win that title. It's not uncommon. Why not? But then well, then when someone like Sally Al-Nasser changes from Nigeria to Bahrain, people are like, oh, that's not fair. So it's interesting. There were people saying that, and there were not. There were some people, I think a lot of people are happy that Bernard Lagarde competes in the United States. There was certainly a, a minority who, I, who I'm sure weren't happy about it. All right. So we have a deleted thread of the week. You guys have three options. Do the Brojos and LRC staff carry a protection at meets? I think that was related. That's related to John's earlier comment about guns. That, that one's one. scary. I, I think I want to avoid that one. All right. T- option number two: Centro, least deserving Olympic gold medalist of all time? Question mark. Question mark. What's the third one? Third one. Breaking news: July and August to be scrapped. Oh, I want to talk about the Centro one because Robert kind of brought this up earlier. P- There's no such thing as a least deserving Olympic. I mean, I guess. All right. If you're going to make the argument about least deserving, I would say 
it is, you know, maybe Seb- Sebastian Coe in 1980 when the Africans boycotted. I mean, I don't think, and uh, no disrespect to Sebastian Coe, he's the only guy to win two Olympic 1500 titles. Obviously, he's a legend, but the guy who wins the Olympic 1500 is the, by definition, he's the Olympic champion. I mean, there's no least deserving. Like, everyone steps on the line, the same opportunity. That's the race. I mean, it's not like Kip, Kip Rock made a mistake and. Maybe 2012, you could say Kiprot wasn't fully healthy and he could have won that year. But 2016, they all lined up and Centro won. I don't understand why people are still bent out of shape over this. Like, he outraced them and won the Olympics. Least deserving. I mean, by definition, the winning winner is the most deserving athlete. Why was that though deleted? I wanted to read it, actually. just didn't have time. Yeah, that's just some of the issue, right? Like, why is that thread deleted? Usually it's the non-running ones. I mean, it's kind of mean to athletes but like my thing is i think some of the pros take issue with what's run but like if you're a pro athlete and people are discussing your career like it just comes with the territory that's what sports fans do like it's not going to be all nice and pretty we don't want people to you know denigrate someone or personal attacks or that sort of thing but the thread in general seems fine to me so i was just kind of surprised i mean let me scroll through here maybe just kind of figure what's the point it's not really right anything right now but i i don't know Looks fine. Hey, speaking of such, we're still looking for new moderators. We have our first all-American moderator. This person was an all-American NCAA cross-country sub-1340 for 5K as well. And I think on the one podcast, I said, hey, if you're interested in moderating, email me at wejo at letsrun.com or call 844-LET'S-RUN. Well, then you shouldn't have said sub-1340 because now this person has been outed as a male. We're trying to increase the diversity of our moderators i'm just gonna toot my own horn here well then tells me the guy's name he's like have you ever heard of this person expecting i would say no and then i'm like oh yeah i know that guy and i got his place at ncaa cross within like one place of where he finished his senior year and uh yeah blew their minds so uh on the topic of pros actually talking about let's run so scott smith uh naz elite runner just tweeted about this there's a thread on Let's Run someone started saying, why is Scott Smith running so slowly? And the post is, I follow a couple Hoka NAZ elite guys on Strava. Scott Smith has been running 8-10 to 10 minute mile pace for pretty much all of his runs for a while now. What's up with that? And then someone else posts his profile and he's like, I don't see what you're seeing. And then the original poster says, well, that's embarrassing. I've been following some rando, not the actual athlete. Thanks. So he was just following some random Strava user called Scott Smith as opposed to the Scott Smith. And the July and August thread, I actually read it. I enjoyed it. We banned July and August because they were named for Julius Caesar, Caesar and someone else who built their Augustus empires. Augustus Caesar. Yeah. Oh, excuse me. Well, famous people that built their empires on slavery. So, although my, well, I'm fine. I get, get a new name for my month, my birth, for my birthday. I mean, do we need to rename everything in the United States. What didn't George Washington have slaves? Jefferson City, Missouri. Well, it's interesting. District of Columbia, didn't Christopher Columbus like John, that's interesting. I was gonna ask you that. John, you're you're a woke guy. So I think a lot of people are fine with Robert E. Lee statues coming down because they were kind of trying the whole significant portion of the Civil War was to defend slavery. Although Maryland where I live now was actually a slave state that somehow was in the north. I'm still trying to figure that out. But John, where do you draw the line? People are fine with the Lee statues going down, I think. But then I'm adamant that they're not. If they've changed the name Washington, D.C., no, 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 no. 
But how, it's always that that slippery slope argument. Well, I don't know. It's it's tough. I mean, obviously, having slaves is bad. Uh, it wasn't illegal back then. That doesn't make it right. But are we going? Do we? Does that disqualify everything else he did to establish the country? I just think it's a it's a tough debate. I mean, I don't know. It's yeah. I, I don't re- I, I don't really know how to solve that one, Robert. I mean, there becomes also the issue: should we erase our history, or should you, could you keep? the statues up or move them or put a plaque up and saying like, look, these guys were like fighting to defend slavery and were celebrated. And now we realize that was wrong. Do we learn more from that than just kind of pretending like these guys weren't it? You know, I don't think necessarily having to take them down or maybe put them in a different part of a museum. And there's just various ways to do it. Like, but just leaving them up as sort of glorified deities is one issue, but there's other ways to look at it. But I think the bigger issue is, right, like, look at the Lamps Armstrong building at Nike. We had a Joe Paterno building at Nike. When we celebrate individuals and put them on a pedestal, I think almost by nature, a lot of times we're going to be disappointed because we're all human. We all sin to a different extent. But just when you put a man up on a pedestal, a lot of times you're going to be disappointed. I think maybe that's what we need to think and and just be reminded like a lot of these so-called great men of the past had tremendous flaws. So like what flaws do we have today? That sort of thing. Yeah. I mean, I'm not the Robert E. Lee stuff, all the Confederate stuff I think should be taken down. I mean, it's pretty clear. I I don't know. I mean, it's pretty clear they're in the, they were in the wrong. The part, the part, the part that we go to here in Baltimore is a mile from my house. I mean, for some, there was a big pro Southern Confederacy part of Baltimore, I guess, maybe in Maryland because of the slavery, I guess. We had a Robert E. Lee Park. They changed the name a few years ago, which why would you have a Robert E. Lee Park in Baltimore? It doesn't make any sense. But I also feel like, I don't know. I guess they weren't the leaders of the movement, but if you're in a country and you go to war, there's something, I don't know. I think most people would just fight for their country. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's a difficult thing. No, that's obviously a lot different than celebrating the leaders of that fight but like there was a lot of there was a lot of southern soldiers that had nothing to do with slavery that died in that war so i I don't think you should erase you don't want to erase history you want to erase maybe the celebration of of the cause of the war the the one of the main causes anyways enough talk on that anything else guys i think we're good had a pretty good hour hour and a half here Okay, John, we need your predictions. You've done the research. I guess with the tr- who wins, Team Kenya or Team Norway in this 2,000-meter challenge? To me, I, I, I've got a clear answer now, I guess. <sighs> I was going to say Team Kenya because this Chesky challenge has showed us that altitude's overrated. Anybody can run fast. But if, if Manningway's not in shape, but this new guy. Hmm. I don't know. I mean, it's tough. I... I th- I think I'm gonna go with Team Chariot, but that's maybe the, who knows with this sort of thing, right? We haven't seen we've only thing we've seen these guys do is Jakob and Henrik ran this road five k a few weeks ago. So who really knows? I don't think you know no one's gonna be in top shape for it. I'll say Team Chariot, but they obviously have the hindrance of being an altitude. So also Philip is running the one thousand earlier in the meet. Speaking of sexism and racism, do we have women's events at this meet? 
Yeah, there are some women's events, but there aren't any oh. women's stars on Wait, the level so of... John's confirming what I said all along. You're confirming that Phillips running a 1,000 will be tired. That's what I thought was the case, and you told me a few weeks ago, no, 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 there's no 1,000. What? No, no, no. This conversation never happened. Yes, it did. Yes, it did. On this very same podcast. If you're a listener and it did happen, please... Give me a All right. If if it happened, I accept full. I did not know the full details of the meet. That is true. Philip will be running the 1K about 45 minutes earlier. He will be tired. So if I aired, I apologize. I was misinformed. So I think he's going to be rabbiting. It did air. I'm going to end with the audio of that. I'll put it at the end. I'll find it. All right. Yeah. I need to I need to be humbled. It's it's all good for us to be humbled. I humble Robert and Weldon, you know, weekly on this podcast. It's only fair they return the favor. Okay. I'm... One last thing. I'm reading this thread now as we've been talking about this. People wanting this conspiracy because this Nasser wasn't suspended. You know, this thread's actually interesting. John, do you know you don't have to be suspended for three whereabouts failures? It's an optional suspension. It's an optional provisional suspension. If, you, if you're found guilty, you need to be suspended. Like, they can't just say we're not enforcing this. I think they said it was optional to be provisionally suspended until your ban is actually handed down. Which is what World Athletics could claim in this case. All right, everyone. That's a good podcast. If you know any high schoolers who want some great summer training, send them our way. And also, you can still get 15% off at thefeed.com slash let's run on all your health and performance needs. That discount may be ending soon, so take advantage of that soon. But till next week, Weldon Johnson signing off. And here's our clip of last week's podcast of Robert Johnson talking about the 1,000 meters. I'm saying it could still be a race. Is it completely fair? No. But it, could it still be fun? Could the Chariots, what if the Team Chariot wins? They can just say, you know, suck on this. We beat you guys and we were racing at altitude. That's like just a total ball of move right there. I thought perhaps they were doing it. I'm still not sure. Is one of the Ingebrigtsons trying to run a 1,000-meter time trial like a few hours before this? So he's going to be tired. So they, they were doing this to try to make it more fair. I didn't see anything about that. One of them's going off to Steve Cram's European record, I think. I keep hearing about a 1,000-meter record that one of them's going for. So I thought one of them was going to run a race first and he'd be tired. Like Otherwise, it didn't make any sense to me.